Hello, welcome to The Signal. I'm Felicia Chandler. And I'm Chris Stobley. We're with the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. Today, the housing edition. It's National Housing Day and we're exploring issues around housing and affordability. There is food banks and there is like soup kitchens, but it's not always enough. A landlord is not permitted under the act to ask for more than one month's rent in advance. Our purpose is to revolutionize affordable housing. We actually say affordable communities. We'll hear about struggles and wins in the effort to find a place to call home in Halifax. Also, a woman's best defense against potential attackers? Confidence. And a story about a volunteer opportunity that turned into a heartwarming friendship. That and more straight ahead. But first... It's National Housing Day across Canada today. Six years ago, Halifax Regional Municipality announced a new partnership. Its goal? To end homelessness in the city by 2019. But some say the housing situation has actually gotten worse. Leslie Aminson spoke to one woman who knows the struggle firsthand. On a corner on Spring Garden Road, a woman asks for change from passing strangers. She doesn't want to give her name because of the stigma towards panhandling. She says she doesn't want to be here, but she has no choice. It's definitely been a struggle, and it's very difficult. I have chronic pain and it is almost debilitating. She receives disability insurance, but says it's not enough to cover rent, food, and expenses. And she says, resources for people who are struggling to make ends meet in Halifax are spread thin. There is food banks and there is like soup kitchens, but it's not always enough. And because there's so many people that need it, there's less and less resources to go around. Eric Johnson runs the Navigator Street Outreach Program. He says the current vacancy rate in Halifax has made their work harder. Five years ago, it was a lot easier to find places for people, but now it's really difficult to find places for people to live because the rents are going up, there's fewer and fewer vacant units, and income assistance and the level of funding attached to people who are homeless or street involved has not increased correspondingly. As of October 2019, there were 230 people in Halifax who were actively homeless. It's a pretty clear-cut problem. We need more housing. We need more income for people who are living in poverty. In the meantime, the number of people at risk for homelessness continues to grow. Thank you very much, sir. Have a nice day. For The Signal, I'm Leslie Amundsen. Halifax's tight housing market is also having an effect on students. Some say even if they find an affordable place, landlords are making unreasonable requests. Leslie Totham explains. Evan Smith has been in his new apartment for seven months. He's a full-time student and a single parent. He lived with his grandmother until she died earlier this year. He says it wasn't easy to find his own place. He applied for more than 30 apartments. He thought he'd got lucky. They um, accepted me on the conditions of getting a cosigner, but then obviously like, I couldn't get a cosigner because my nan just died. In desperation, he offered a rental company five months' rent in advance. When they sent me the date to like actually get the keys and stuff, my student loan was coming a couple days after. So I was like, I don't really have the full five months right now. I have like three months I can pay right now. And then I was like, if you wait a few days, I can pay the other two. And then after they heard that, they were like, we already didn't want to accept you. So they, were, they just denied. Dean Johnson is with the Nova Scotia Residential Tenancy Board. He says it's not uncommon for companies and landlords to ask students to pay months of rent in advance. Even if you agree to it in a lease, um, it still doesn't make it legal. Johnson says the tenancy board only intervenes if there's a complaint. The signal called more than a dozen rental companies. 
One said they only accept students with the first and last two months of rent in advance. And two others said they don't like to rent to students at all. Johnson says that's against the law. They can't discriminate on a protected characteristic. So in alleged um, discrimination based on age, they're not permitted to do that. Um, those complaints would be best addressed at the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission. Johnson says students need to know their rights as tenants and do some research on anyone they're thinking about renting from. From The Signal, I'm Leslie Tatum. A recent media reports about a man stalking women at Long Lake is making some people anxious. And while that may have women signing up for self-defense classes, one expert who teaches them says there are misconceptions about what can help women feel more safe. Olivia Malley explains. Prisca Hebert is a student at NSCC. She often finds herself looking over her shoulder. My parents are always like, don't talk to anyone. You'll get kidnapped to the point where they would do scenarios. Like I'd be walking home from school and they'd follow me with a card and all of that. As an adult, her parents' fears have become her own. She has panic attacks and has seen a therapist. She's not alone. Research shows parents became more anxious about safety in the 1990s, likely tied to increasing media coverage of crime. Joan Helson founded Sisu Women's Self-Defense in 2006. She says media stories can create paranoia. It always comes up that we need to be aware of our surroundings. And all that does really is create in us a kind of PTSD almost by expecting that we are always going to be victims. I'm going to say one, two, three, and we're all going to like kick and out at the same time. Okay? One, two, three. Helson has a black belt in Taekwondo and combat hapkido. She says the self-defense she teaches is not just focused on the physical. So there's this idea that instead of giving me power, I'm going to give my power to my pepper spray or my knife or my brass knuckles. Those brass knuckles are not a talisman. They are not going to magically do your work for you. She says women should be mindful of their surroundings, not hypervigilant. She wants them to see potential danger, but also appreciate the beauty around them. No matter how small you might think you are, you're a lot more powerful than, than you've let yourself believe. And as soon as you allow yourself to understand how strong you really are, things seem a lot less scary. Helson says the key to self-defense is empowering women by helping them feel more confident in themselves. For The Signal, I'm Olivia Malley. Stepping Stone has just celebrated its 30th anniversary. It's the only nonprofit organization in Halifax dedicated to sex workers. That's right. And now they're gearing up to spread a little holiday cheer to both sex workers and their families. That's the sound of children having fun at this year's Santa Claus Parade. Many kids look forward to events like these every year. For others, it's a little different. Alex McDonald is the executive director of Stepping Stone. She says their annual Christmas party makes all the difference to them. It's one of the most um, waited for events for our program users. It's an amazing event. We give out gifts to the program users as well as their kids and Santa comes and all these volunteers come and we have big turkey dinners and with all the sides and the sweet table is like something you can't even imagine. But... McDonald thinks events like this do more than just offer hot meals and gifts. It really brings us together, not just program users um, coming together, but also like the amount of volunteers that come every year. It really brings everybody together. McDonald says sex workers are able to make important connections with volunteers who attend, including lawyers and people in the justice system. She says that goes right to Stepping Stone's mandate to reach out. It's super important because... 
um, the streets are really dangerous, and we kind of have an eye on them. Forty sex workers currently use services at Stepping Stone. They hope to destigmatize consensual sex work. That's a really great story, Felicia. Um, it's awesome that these people have the, this opportunity in Halifax. You're listening to The Signal on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax. We're with the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Chris Dudley. And I'm Felicia Chandler. The National Education Association of Disabled Students says there are almost 200,000 Canadians who attend university and have accessibility needs. Those needs range from accessible washrooms to learning accommodations for people with cognitive or mental health problems. This week, St. Mary's University held events to bring attention to the issue. Sam Gillett has more. Liam Canelli is a psychology student at St. Mary's. He rolls his wheelchair through the school's bustling colonnade with ease. He rarely uses the automatic doors. I find those ones are slow, too slow to open, so it kind of drives me nuts, but I mean, they're there if you need them. <laughs> automatic doors are just one way universities have changed to be more accessible to students like Liam. St. Mary's first ever Accessibility Week featured seminars and speakers looking at how the province as a whole is becoming more accessible. As Tom mentioned, I am an alumni, graduated from school in 1992. Kevin Murphy is the speaker of the provincial legislature. He's the first speaker of the house in any government who's also a quadriplegic. He's proud of his alma mater for shining a light on the issue of accessibility. That shows the commitment of this institution to uh, to providing that level of support to students uh, who have disabilities um, and recognizing that the potential is there. We just need to enable that student to, to reach their potential. Baden Mercer is that student. He describes himself as having high-functioning autism. He was inspired to hear Murphy speak. I think we have to learn, we have to be more inclusive in our society. We have to have those doors open to make sure everyone has an equal opportunity to learn. A speaker with the Nova Scotia Department of Justice said this week that the province has made a promise of full accessibility in all public buildings by 2030. For The Signal, I'm Sam Gillett. Visually impaired people have all kinds of struggles. Sometimes it's daily tasks, sometimes it's isolation. A program called Vision Mates can help with both. It pairs visually impaired people with a sighted volunteer based on interests. And there are 60 people in Nova Scotia currently waiting for a match. Andrea McGuire has more than one match that seems made in heaven. I have a present for you. Oh! <gasps> oh my god, it's, it's quite a healthy loaf, I can tell. Matthew Hellman is a 20-year-old biology student at Dalhousie University. He just surprised his friend Randy Arnold with a homemade loaf of bread. And you sliced it for me. Sliced it for you. Arnold is visually oh impaired. God. He and Hellman met through the Vision Mates program. It's coordinated by the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Every week, Hellman offers what's called sighted assistance to Arnold as a volunteer. He helps him with daily tasks that blind people might find difficult, like shopping, going for walks, and reading the mail. To Randy Arnold, got our mission... Our values. Today, Arnold is having trouble with his kitchen stereo. And I don't want to read it because he started playing Christmas music today. Hit it once and see where you are. Okay. Yeah. Hellman says when he found out about Vision Mates, he knew he'd found the perfect volunteering fit. I actually hoped to become a doctor and an eye surgeon at that. So my dad was losing his vision and he got an eye surgery and it fixed it up. It was amazing. So ever since then, I've been very interested in vision. Six months ago, Hellman and Arnold met as strangers. And now? I should start by saying I feel like he is 100% a 
one of my closest friends. And there's been a couple of times where I've leaned on him and he's leaned on me. And I like him as a person. I have almost like a family feel towards him, if that makes any sense. He's almost like a, I feel like he's a family member. Jeff DeViller coordinates Vision Mates. He says one problem with the program, people often stop recording their volunteer hours. Because they're like, I'm not really volunteering anymore. This is just me hanging out with my friend. With Hellman and Arnold, the friendship clearly runs deep. We're generations apart, but he's extremely mature and I'm extremely not. So, 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 so we have some things in common already. Exactly. He's the wise old man. The Vision Mates program is actively seeking volunteers who can make a six-month commitment. For The Signal, I'm Andrea McGuire. You're listening to The Signal, news and current affairs from the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Felicia Chandler. And I'm Chris Studley. Silk, still to come on the show. We'll hear from scientists, architects, and regular people feeling anxious about climate change. This is a movement, and movements require lots of little pushes. That's the way they go. That's the way the world changes. It begins with the community that we're in, and it'll radiate out from there. Talking about climate change, doing it in a supportive environment where everyone also sort of feels the same anxieties. We'll revisit the housing theme, this time with the solutions in mind. That's the sound of a new ensemble that's taking inspiration from contemporary concerns. We'll hear more. Government housing agencies say people shouldn't spend more than 30% of their income before taxes on housing. But in Halifax, the average person is paying 75%. That's according to the Canadian Rental Housing Index. A new rental company is trying to change that. Kate Woods has a story. I have never seen anything like this. Deborah Davis lives in one of the Halifax apartment buildings owned by Vita Living. She moved in September and says it's not your typical rental. It's like a community. Um, if you have talents, we'll use the talents to help to keep our buildings up. If we've got people who know how to paint, um, clean apartments. I've never lived in a, in a community like that before where they're helping the tenants to better themselves and also to make some extra money on the side. Ron Lovett is the landlord. He owns about 350 apartment units in buildings across Halifax and Dartmouth. The average cost of a one-bedroom apartment in Halifax is well over $1,000. Lovett's two-bedroom apartments rent for $800 a month, including heat and hot water. He says he developed a new way of making apartments affordable after fixing up his first run-down building four years ago. I thought, you know, no one's really been innovative in the affordable housing space. He buys cheap buildings and repairs them. He gets grants from the province to help with the cost, and tenants help with upkeep to make extra money. Our purpose is to revolutionize affordable housing. We actually say affordable communities. Lovett is ambitious. He says Vita Living hopes to have 10,000 apartment units across North America within seven years. For The Signal, I'm Kate Woods. Do 
you know, for the first time in the history of the planet, a species is actually modifying uh, the fundamental function of the planet. It's an alarming scenario. That's Dr. Daniel Raynham from Dalhousie University. He's one of the 11,000 scientists worldwide who are declaring a climate emergency. They all signed an article that warns the planet Earth is clearly and unequivocally facing a climate emergency. The Signal's Dane Patterson met with a few professors from Dalhousie University who added their names to the article. He's here to tell us more. Hi, Dane. Hi, Felicia. How's it going? Doing well. How are you? Good. Tell me more about this paper. Well, this document is less of a research paper and more of a compilation of data to show that there is a serious problem. The information looks at the last 40 years to indicate signs of climate change. It specifically looks at the human link to climate change. Overall, it gives an easy-to-read pulse on how the Earth is doing and an update on what we, as humans, are doing to it climate-wise. The data shows an increase in things like extreme weather events, carbon dioxide, ocean acidity, and sea level change. There are decreases, but in ice masses. The data is often collected over several decades. The authors say their data has been collected at least every year for five or more years. What makes this an emergency now? Well, I should be clear, the climate emergency they mention isn't exactly an impending doom, but a notch in the timeline. The authors say that alarms have been sounded during summits in the past three decades. The most recent is the 2015 Paris Agreement. But they say that emissions are still increasing. Dr. Martin Willison is a retired biology and environmental science professor at Dell. He's interested in nature conservation and explains much better than I can what climate emergency really means. The issue with respect to climate change is not an issue of the next five or ten years. Uh, so when we say the word emergency, we're not talking about an emergency that's going to occur five years from now, ten years from now, even 30 years from now. We're talking about an emergency condition which is going to evolve over the next hundreds or even thousands of years. But if we don't take action now, we're not able to control the emergency of the future. The action needs to be taken now or started now in a proper manner. We've been doing it for some time, but we're not doing it fast enough. We have to put the climate crisis and protection of the environment right at the top. Uh, if we don't do that, then we're going to be in for some really dire trouble in the long-term future. This is a movement, and movements require lots of little pushes, lots of little pushes. That's the way they go. That's the way the world changes. Has the science community ever come together like this over the climate issue before? Yeah, a couple of times. Most of the scientists I spoke with referred to two previous papers. One was published in 1992 with almost 2,000 signatures, and another in 2017 had over 15,000. At the time, the authors believed that, that that 2017 paper was the largest number of scientists to co-sign or support a published journal article. That article was also signed by some of the same scientists including at least some of the Dalhousie professors. Ah, what did the scientists or professors tell you about why they signed this time? Well, they talk a lot about future generations, both human and other animals who are innocent and bear little responsibility for climate change. Dr. Karen Baisley is a Dalhousie professor who focuses on biodiversity. She says activism is an important part of being a scientist and an expert. A, a lot of the time, 
in the past, scientists didn't feel that they should speak out in an advocacy or activist kind of way, and that's starting to change now where people are saying, well, you're the ones with the information or the knowledge. You should have some responsibility in getting it out there so that people know, so that governments know. Um, and this is a reflection of that kind of work. So what happens now? Well, scientists can continue their research, but there's something more. The first line of the document says that scientists have a moral obligation to warn humanity and tell it like it is. It's really up to leaders, or as the paper calls them, decision and policymakers. The paper has received a lot of attention and has most likely landed on the desks of powerful people, but it's asking for change. Dr. Daniel Ranham is an earth and environmental science professor at Dow. He says it's not going to be a simple technological change that's required. You know, I think the, the main message from scientists is that decision and policymakers need to actually implement action uh, to change the current situation. And, you know, it's what people call a complex problem. Uh, there's no easy solution. But the reality is that it's going to require probably a fundamental change in how we interact with each other and how we interact with resources. And I think, you know, a cultural change from, you know, really thinking about our economic systems and how we use natural resources and what's really important to us as a species. So they're hoping that this warning is taken more seriously than the past climate warnings. And you can read more about this soon online at signalhfx.ca. Watch for that next week. Wow. Thanks for this, Dane. I thought that was really interesting information. And if you have thoughts, share them with us on Twitter or Instagram. We're at SignalHFX. Last month on The Signal, we heard from a group of Dalhousie architecture students who want to see changes in the way their discipline is taught. This week, they hosted a gathering to introduce themselves to the broader Halifax community and announce some new developments. Ethan Lang was there. At a packed bar in downtown Halifax, architecture students mix with Dalhousie faculty and local architects. The students call themselves the Supernatural Design Collective. They're presenting a newly drafted manifesto. Student Lore Nolte says it outlines what they want to see in the study and practice of architecture. This manifesto has created the framework for the work that we want to be doing, and it feels like a really clear way to share our goals with the community around us. The overarching goal is this, calling academics and professionals to put environmental responsibility at the forefront of building design. The UN reports that buildings are responsible for about 40% of global energy use. Nolte says students are frustrated that classes aren't preparing them to combat environmental impact when designing. Sustainability seems like an optional choice instead of integrated from the very beginning of the design process. The Dean of Architecture and Planning has yet to meet with anyone from the collective, but says she's open to hearing from them. The collective hopes to start a nationwide network of students and professionals, They've already heard from students and faculty from McGill and Athabasca universities. Architect Eric Stotts says professionals are starting to shift their thinking too. I've made an effort, along with I think a lot of practitioners, to really kind of reconceptualize what we do. And 100% of that is due to kind of the climate situation we find ourselves in. Interest from colleagues outside the Dalhousie classroom gives Nolte hope. My heart just feels so warm because I know what we're doing is so important and it begins with the community that we're in and it'll radiate out from there. The Natural Design Collective will be offering public workshops in the weeks and months ahead. For The Signal, I'm Ethan Lang. 
As governments talk about climate change initiatives, some people are dealing with not just worries but fears about the future of our planet. In Halifax, there's a place people are going to express those fears. It's a poster-papered house on Agrigola Street. One of the posters says, I will not die or just survive, I will thrive. Christina Pappas went to find out more. At the Climate Cafe, volunteers are cooking a group meal in the kitchen. Eric Burton started coming to the cafes in August. I thought it was a great opportunity to come meet people who shared those same values and uh, drive to make positive change in our community. The cafe is run by the Extinction Rebellion Group. It's part of an international effort to demand environmental change from governments. It also welcomes people to come in and talk about climate grief. Caroline Badeau looks forward to coming most weeks after a long day of environmental science studies at university. Even though I'm coming knowing I'm still going to be talking about climate change, doing it in a supportive environment where everyone also sort of feels these same anxieties or grief or turmoil, and it's almost that action of sharing these thoughts together that really creates a lot of solidarity and is almost cathartic. Yvonne Fisher is one of the organizers of a drop-in that recognizes climate anxiety is a common thing for young people. We wanted a way to allow people who hadn't necessarily met us before to feel comfortable coming and talking with us, and we're also just expressing grief over the climate catastrophe that we're heading towards. Members also talk about solutions and plan future actions. We can really lean into this uncomfortable state that we're in and start to unpack and what does it mean to hold ecological grief and to have ecological anxiety. About 10 people are here grateful for a space people can go to for support and to talk about any climate-related issue that's on their mind. Christina Pappas for The Signal. Anyone can go to the Climate Cafe. It's every Wednesday at 5 p.m. at the Open Mic House on Agrigola Street. Musicians also think about climate issues and other contemporary concerns. A new chamber ensemble is preparing for their first performance this weekend, and they're tackling a topic we've been talking about today, climate change. Alkali Collective wants to use music to start discussions about important issues in today's world. This first concert, Music for Climate, is really about using music as a means of bringing people together, focusing on a topic that is very important, and seeing if we can start a dialogue. Shauna DeGrushi is the co-artistic director of the Alkali Collective, a role she shares with Megan DeBow. They both studied at Acadia University. Now, the two want to add to the canon of contemporary music by bringing the works of emerging composers to a local audience. One of the musicians in the collective is India Yeshe Gailey, who plays the cello. I feel really strongly about making music that is relevant to our time, like both as an individual and in the ensembles that I play. Dilshan Wirasinga says music has always been political to some degree. He just wrapped up his Master's of Musicology at Dalhousie University. He looked at how music and activism merge. Music and activism, it's when this music is used as a form of expression and giving someone else that information of, oh, I didn't know this about these issues, right? Now you have this sort of window into uh, an experience you might not be familiar with that allows that movement to kind of spur on. The Alkali Collective has planned two more concerts for next year, in February and May. Their next concert will look at how music brings people from different backgrounds together. 
And Felicia, India Yashay Gailey, um, the cellist in that group, she's also in another group called New Hermitage. Um, just a couple weeks ago, they just won uh, an award for Music Nova Scotia. Uh, I thought you play, I thought I'd play you a little bit of that. Um, here's Trappist One from their cassette called One. Thanks, Chris, for showing us that. That's our show today. If there's anything you want to hear again, we'll be posting a link on our social media feeds. Our handle is SignalHFX on Twitter and on Instagram. Or you can use our hashtag SignalRadio. We'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts on the show. Thanks this week to our producer, Ben Boxty, associate producer, Dane Patterson, and our social media producer, Alex Scaltetti. Mark Pinio is our technician. Our audio professor is Pauline Dakin. I'm Crystal Lee. And I'm Felicia Chandler. Thanks for listening and have a gosh darn great weekend.